the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. What was that? <laughs> and I'm Ray. As usual, and we welcome you back to episode number 97, so close to those triple digits, where today we're just going to be talking about some classical mechanics. That's right, yeah. classical. The classical world where everything is determined. Yeah. There's something called Laplace's demon, and it's something that a lot of people love to think about because once we got to the 18th century, people started thinking about gas particles and you know they didn't really know that much about atoms so they were just you know trying to figure out properties of the very small things in this world and so laplace's demon is basically an entity that knows the position and momentum of every single particle in the universe and so it was thought at the time that laplace's demon you know given his knowledge he could predict the state of the universe at any point in the future yeah. and at any point yeah. in the past. However, um, due to recent modern discoveries, we found that, you know, even if you do know the position and momentum of every particle, even though that's not possible, but let's say it is possible, you will not be able to predict where the universe is going nor where it came from due to um, chaos and nonlinear effects and turbulence and things like that. Mm. Um, there's a great uh, Veritasium video on that called the butterfly effect, which is, you know, he talks about all this stuff. It's very, very good. Mm. Classical mechanics is very interesting, especially when we talk about it because we're so, or at least you are so always quantum, quantum, and we always, we always end up in some episode talking about quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is cool. No, I mean, I'm not <laughs> saying it isn't. It's amazing, but Brief the, intro on quantum mechanics. <laughs> Here's the thing. The, the world is quantum. There is no such thing as a classical world. The world is quantum well, based. It's just classical phenomena that emerge from the quantum world that we live I in. I think it can be seen the other way too, though, that we live in it because I think they're both just ways of interpreting our world. I don't think we live in a classical world. I don't think we live in a quantum world either. I think so, those are just ways so there's something, of explaining the world we're in. So like... Here's what I would say to that. Okay. Everything that you are made of and everything that you, not even you, I'm saying the entire universe is made up of quantum particles. Yeah, but okay, that, I mean, you're looking at the small scale. I'm looking at what the universe is. Look at, look I'm at, looking at, the big I'm, scale. I'm looking at what the universe is. The universe is fundamentally quantum. It's fundamentally part of Classical yes. phenomena like chairs and planets are they emerge from quantum mechanical effects like taking the limit as the amount of particles go to very high numbers or the mass goes to very high numbers i mean again okay you're describing like the quantum world that we live in i agree with you there but like when you're okay i i was thinking you're more like saying we live in so we can describe quantum mechanics, but then if we're trying to make it a, like a little more general, we ap approach the classical. I'm just saying like classical and quantum are just, if you think about it, like if just you, interpretations of what our everyday life is. If you want to be really approximative, 
then sure use classical mechanics no it's i mean good. That's, that's the whole point it's right? I good think that's where it started like the whole uh, the whole thing was originally i guess also you can't really but, um, determine every particle so when we have like a glass we don't know the i guess the exact number of things here and there the amount of well, that's why electrons we use bombarding uh, so we approximate mechanics. with classical mechanics that's why we use it yeah. but i'm saying that the world is quantum we look at it classically but it is not classical it is quantum is quantum strong statement but i guess we can move on i, mean, <laughs> I guess true. we can move on okay all right before getting into the rest of this podcast we have a little bit of news you might notice that today's episode is a little bit shorter that's because we don't have that much time turns very out that uh, university is very it's a very busy thing mm-hmm. to have going on in your life and uh, we've got homework we've had we have lab reports classes and other things um including something in 40 minutes and so uh yeah this uh, yeah this episode is gonna be like 45 minutes or something like that um but yeah anyways before we get into this oh yeah we also we have a little bit of news we recently hit 22,000 followers on spotify so thank you everybody for that let's go um other than that everything is going well comment of the week we didn't get that many comments this week but if you want to be next week's comment of the week, make sure to leave a comment down below. This week's comment comes from Jasmeet Walia. Hey. He says, very interesting episode, very informative. Keep them coming. Don't worry about that. We will <laughs> keep them coming. We will keep them coming. We will keep them coming. <laughs> Anything else? Anything else? Um, also, we did we did announce on Instagram our apologies for the late NFT drop. <laughs> just Again, just so much work. You know, sometimes we don't remember all the things we have to do on certain days, certain dates. So it's dropped. And now instead of this episode, obviously we're going to be talking about it and releasing the winner next episode. So the very first NFT winner already has their NFT. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yep. So congratulations. That's amazing. Um, By the way, it's on Cardano. It's a, it's a Cardano blockchain NFT. So um, if, you know, if you end up winning, it's not an Ethereum one. Probably just let you know. Yeah, exactly. But much lower gas fees and all too, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. So, anything else? I think that's everything. Uh, So, let's get into it. I think, uh, first of all, when we talk about classical mechanics, we're talking about F equals MA. That's as much much classical as you can get. Right. That's where it pretty much started. Saying that... The sum of forces on an object is just a mass times the acceleration. Um, And yeah, it's a pretty simple statement. You learn that in high school, they give you a situation where, you know, you have a block, someone's pushing on it, and then it's also falling due to gravity. And then you got to calculate like its trajectory or something. Um, I guess that would be a little bit more complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, the falling <laughs> no, no. block would be a little more complicated. I think the simple example is, well, just take any cart, like a frictionless cart, and you put it with like five newtons. What's okay. the initial yeah. acceleration, sure. for example, is a much sure. easier sure. idea. And I think also what that also, also it also states that the sum of all external forces are is equal to MA because that's also important because, yeah. you know, a little bit later on, you also come to internal forces in a system yeah. and you come to the astonishing uh, result that internal forces don't actually matter at all yeah but this is the reason why you can't jump and like push yourself <laughs> and then like go mm-hmm. in a direction mm-hmm. exactly or um uh, if you're in an elevator <laughs> you can't 
<laughs> we've had this conversation we've had this very before conversation. but uh you know anything that happens you know you see those like stupid posts on facebook where it's like oh like just stand in a bucket and then pull the the mm. sides up so you'll float <laughs> it's like no wait stand i've never, like, I've never seen it stand uh, in a bucket it's and like pull you stand the in sides a bucket up. and like you hold the lever and okay then you pull on it and then you'll move up it makes no sense. What? It's no, <laughs> That's just not how the, it works. <laughs> the forces are all in the system. And yeah. So it's all internal. So it doesn't matter. Um, and this is actually true in general. Like if you consider the entire universe as a system, then like nothing interesting really happens because everything just cancels out under the assumptions of, yeah. of, you know, classical mechanics yeah. and not, you know, an accelerating There are a lot of, yeah, universe. exactly. There are, there, what would that mean? What would that, if the universe accelerates, like, what, what would that mean? Well, I mean, it is accelerating in our no, I know, latest but, theories. But, like, what's... Is there a force, an internal force that... Yeah, dark is energy. ...is causing it to accelerate? So I guess F equals MA doesn't count in that case because the internal force is making something accelerate. No, but, but I guess I there's a think, whole. I don't think it. I don't think energy, dark energy, is it. Okay, yeah, I don't really. No, know but how there's that's... a whole bunch of like other things that don't really make sense. Because in this case, we're not talking about an object accelerating. We're talking about the boundary of existence accelerating. So, like, is that yeah. even an object? It's not. Yeah, <laughs> that because, has because there was the whole thing about like information traveling faster than the speed of light, but yeah. then that's not really information. Like you know the, yeah. the whole quantum thing, yeah. entanglement. So like. I think I think that kind might kind of might be on like might be in the same line as this mm-hmm. that it's just the boundary so it's not like a physical object that's accelerating so that's mm-hmm. why technically the boundary is I think like relative observers is like accelerating faster than the speed of light right mm-hmm. so I'm pretty sure at at some point there's literally going to be the boundary to someone accelerating faster than light which makes no sense which is why it doesn't exactly get covered under the information so it can do whatever it wants kind of like outside the bounds of what we say are objects yeah i guess coming back to classical mechanics um you learn in high school about forces friction and energy energy is actually really interesting and actually i don't know if we're going to get to this today but we're definitely going to make another episode about lagrangian mechanics and also hamiltonian mechanics because those are so beautiful and the analogy in like from electrodynamics is so awesome how in electrodynamics or just electrostatics you have um the electric potential which is just a scalar potential it's just one value it just has a scalar value at every point in space and then when you get to magnetostatics you have a vector potential where the the potential is described by a vector at every point in space which is harder to calculate just because it's a vector and also you know it's just like weirder in general mm. but now same thing with well the, the point of saying that is that it's much easier to deal with scalars than vectors and in the case of newtonian mechanics f equals ma you're figuring out like in solving a problem you're figuring out the forces which usually are three-dimensional vectors acting on an object and so you're gathering up all these three-dimensional vectors and then solving for the motion of your object but you know what's easier than vectors is scalars and you know what's a scalar energy is a scalar and so when we do end up talking about lagrangian mechanics later on um 
we're going to see how instead of gathering up all these three-dimensional vectors, you can gather up instead properties of the system that are one-dimensional, just scalar values like the kinetic energy and the potential energy. And then from there, I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but you can get the exact same equations mm. from F equals MA, but mm -hmm. through energy. So, so I mean, I think great. I think we could like dabble on into it a little bit later on this episode because I mean, yeah, Lagrangian so. mechanics is classical mechanics. No, it is. Yeah, it, like even, it's just a different way to do it, right? Yeah. So okay, because it's equivalent. We actually so one that. way, okay, if if there's anything to be known about classical mechanics for let's say people that are listening that are like, what really is classical mechanics? It's really a culmination of multiple different techniques. The very first one. The, New the Newtonian mechanics is kind of like the forefront yeah. of classical mechanics. Yeah, I believe there there probably was multiple and scientists before that started it. But like, yeah, nowadays though, um, Newtonian mechanics is pretty synonymous with, with cla classical yeah. mechanics because yeah. you don't touch Lagrangian or Hamiltonian until you get to third year. No, but remember, Lagrangian is very basic classical mechanics. No, too. I know, like, but there's no way anyone's going to know about that before they get into... Oh, yes, for sure. Before very they get into any advanced, higher, higher academic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, so so Newtonian is what like everybody knows, everybody's familiar with because it's also like the easiest also because it comes from just the first three principles, mm -hmm. which make a lot of sense. Like the very first law, like that's basically like if you think about it, like the first principles of classical mechanics, like Newton's mm -hmm. first first three laws. And they kind of describe a lot about how the universe should work. And you know what's funny is that the, like if you were to plot the, the difficulty of problems that you can solve versus difficulty, or sorry, difficulty of the method versus difficulty of the problems that you can solve, the Newtonian method has a very high gradient, mm. like, yes, but, but it intercepts zero. Of course. It intercepts zero, meaning beginners can like start. Beginners can start. But I understand the that. gradient is very high, meaning as soon as you start to get a little bit complicated, like it, it becomes so difficult. Because but, the moment your system gets complicated, yeah, as you just said, exactly. you have to take into consideration all these three-dimensional forces. Exactly. But at some point, it makes more sense to switch to Lagrangian mechanics because the intercept is actually not zero it's very high which means like beginners can't start there but the gradient is much lower which means that when newtonian mechanics that line intercepts the one for lagrangian mechanics it makes so much more sense to just hop onto the other one because now mm. you can start solving much more complicated problems without putting in that much more effort because you like you you understand how it works now it's just applying mm. your probably like you have a question where it's like a rope around a pulley doing a dance and you just, <laughs> you just apply the you apply all the things all the kinetic the potential and then you just plug it into the thing mm -hmm. and you, you're done and next step from there it's becomes, hard to get to becomes there. hamiltonian mechanics that's even yeah. an, another step farther that i haven't even gotten there yet it mainly is again i mean if we are familiar with the hamiltonian from quantum mechanics or i mean technically you shouldn't be doing quantum before this but we did so it's funny well, why not though like why? It's two different ball games. I guess you know? you're right. It's I know. I guess I guess you're right. But it's just it's just interesting to see that well, the Hamiltonian from Hamiltonian mechanics oh, yeah, and classical way, yeah. mechanics is representing the Hamiltonian of the system, which is what yeah. we see in in quantum mechanics. So in quantum that mechanics, way. we're told that the Hamiltonian is kind of like an evolutionary operator. It's telling you how much energy a system has. 
And that's basically what the similar thing in, in Hamiltonian mechanics is in classical mechanics. However, the advantage, and again, I we're not going to get into this. Not Neither do I really understand the exact implications and the real depth of it. But the biggest advantage of, well, Lagrangian mechanics versus, let's say, Hamiltonian mechanics is that, well, Hamiltonians, again, they commute. They work with quantum quantum operators. They work with things that we're used to. Mm, so the Hamiltonian, I mean, a more scientific way of saying it is that the Hamiltonian can be quantized, but the Lagrangian cannot. Like cannot cannot always be quantized. So what is usually done is first converted to a Hamiltonian via transformation, and then you do all this analysis. So it's pretty mm. cool why we do it and like these different steps. But you also might be asking yourself now, well. Okay, I get it that, you know, it's a little hard. They're hard steps. But, like, what are these steps for? Like, we're understanding that, okay, F equals MA. But, like, what am I learning about the system from this mm. particular equation, right? And that comes from equations of motion, right? I mean, we, we can kind of dabble into that because I, yeah. think, I think that is the fundamental concept of understanding what's actually happening in a system. Because they don't tell you that in high school. Not at all. What they tell Not you, what they tell you is, okay, so F equals MA. Once you have the acceleration, then you find like the initial velocity, mm. the initial position, and then you can plot out its motion or whatever. But turns out motion is a lot more complicated than that. And so we have these things called equations of motion but they don't explicitly tell you like where the particle is and where it's going it just tells you the rule that it must follow mm. no matter where it is and no matter or i guess it could depend on where it is but you yeah. know it, if, yeah. if you like i'm saying in no matter where it is as in you can say it's here and it will follow the rule that the equation of motion gives you um so yeah Equations of motion, they come from F equals MA, at least mm. in the beginning, when you learn about equations of motion. And the reason is because F equals MA, as spoken about in another episode, are differential equations. Mm. Um, second derivative of a position with respect to time is acceleration. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it's pretty straightforward. Well, you know, the thing about differential equations is that there is no general solution to a differential equation. There are s ways to solve specific differential equations. But if you were to give me a function of, uh, let's say, time and position and velocity, acceleration, dot, 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 there's no general solution. Like, there's no that. general way to solve, you mean? Or yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, like, general solution. I'm saying. I guess yeah, you're right. You, I think we did like mention if, this on the podcast. If you too. just have like some random amalgamation of terms t together, and you say that's equal to zero, hmm. and, like there's no way for you to you can solve it numerically, but that's not really a, an mm -hmm. analytical solution mm -hmm. that we love. <laughs> um, but there are specific uh, equations, for example, <laughs> linear equations, which which we we love very much, um, because F equals MA for easy situations is usually a, a linear thing, or you can even approximate it as a linear uh, situation. So for example, I think the, the biggest example that you revisit time and again uh, in university is 
simple harmonic motion, just a just a mass on a spring. Um, the reason why it's so important is because you can learn about, you know, how the equation of motion changes and how to deal with those changes. And also not even just that, let's say you have just a mass on a spring and then we say, okay, what if we consider the air friction, then it'll slow down. The oscillations will get smaller and smaller. Well, let's see how that term fits into our equation of motion. And then let's see the things that arise from that. Also, then we ask, what else can we put in there? Well, what if we have um, a driving force? So you, somebody is forcing the spring to go at a certain frequency. Um, and then what comes out of there? Well, you get things like resonance. Mm -hmm. You get things like um, destructive interference where, you know, the spring could just, the, the mass could not move at all, even though there's, you know, something counterbalancing or counteracting it, it just still won't move. And then we're definitely going to talk about coupled oscillators uh, in a little bit. No, but uh, we, we can also further continue on to like, because these damped oscillations can also have like certain properties, mm -hmm. right? It can be underdamped. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Can be critically damped. Critically damped. It can be overdamped. Yeah. And these are all. I remember this from differential equation. Do, do you remember exactly what they have? Because they're like different properties with different. Yeah, we actually did this in uh, in like last semester. I we can did? find it. What? Um, no, I mean I did. Oh, you did. Okay. okay <laughs> I okay. did this. Uh, but yeah, so underdamped is a property um, that basically it's like it's like long term dampening. Essentially, you'll see a lot of oscillations before it goes to zero. Mm. And that may be something like a mass, uh, just like a block on a spring. You see that if you pull it down and let it go, it won't immediately go straight to equilibrium. It'll do some oscillations. And then something like overdamped is maybe like the same situation, but in maple syrup. So that if you let go of the mass, it'll kind of just like slowly return back to equilibrium and it won't oscillate at all. Mm -hmm. And then you have something called critically damped. And this is just kind of the fine line between overdamped and underdamped. And it's pretty like mathematical. I don't recall if there's a way to like tell what the difference is, but I think it's possible to see one oscillation yeah, no, that, no that's what i'm saying i think there's a no there, there's a difference like when you actually see what's happening you can tell which one it is i just forget on the top of my head which one which one is you know because i remember for no but i'm just talking about critically damped. yeah no but i'm, I'm talking for for i mean for really all of them for on for one of them it oscillates right for one of them it goes it oscillates once and then it goes to zero yeah, right? that's critically damped. That's critically damped, yeah, it right? It goes, it goes apart from the, it goes cross axis and then it goes to zero. And this is, again, I'm just talking about like how the solution looks. And then finally we have, is that over? This is in phase space. So like oh, here's multiple like velocity and position. And so there are multiple oscillations. The critically damped one is the black one. So it kind of gets a little bit of so velocity. Right. Okay. Anyways, there's a lot of different like setups, mm. a lot of in different initial conditions. Like it is possible if you have like 
an initial condition where the, the velocity is really high and it's critically damped, then it will go past equilibrium and then return back the other way. But that won't happen for overdamp. Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely won't. matters. And all of this comes from a simple characteristic of differential equations, really. So these equations are like these um, these spring equations. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if we... Did we do spring? Yeah, yeah. We did F equals KX, right? Did we talk about that? Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm just talking about spring equations and how you get from there to understanding these underdamped and damped conditions. Yeah, Because yeah, understanding yeah. that is basically just understanding the property of negative square roots. Because all of these critical oh, under yeah, and, yeah. and over damped is just when this the dampening factor of the of the yeah, of yeah. this of the uh, of this the dampening is it of the spring the or is it of the, the mass? Spring? I think it's like the, the dampening factor when it's equal to something, when it's greater than something. Yeah, coefficient is the correct mm -hmm. word. When it's greater than something and when it's less than something. So when it's equal to something, the square root is zero, and there's some properties of the general solution. When it's greater than something, the square root is positive, and now you have some more, some new properties of the general solution. And when it's negative, you now have complex roots or a complex square root. So now you have even more weird properties about these about this differential equation. So it all stems from the fundamental principle of how it is defined, the force or how the equation of motion of a spring is defined. And it's just got to do with second derivatives and first, it's just a differential equation, really. And what you're, again, solving for in this situation is you're just solving for, well, what is the equation of motion? And again, coming back to how important that is, all that's really telling you is how a specific object or a specific thing that you're measuring is evolving with time. If you take its derivative with respect to time and its second derivative, I believe you need like two derivatives or well, technically, one time evolution is your equation of motion. And that's how you understand, or at least a little better, about how this one object can move throughout time. We can also go, like, do a simple example. Because this is pretty easy to understand, right? Or, I guess, easy to follow along. If, you, For example, F equals MA, we have a spring. F is minus KX, right? K is the spring factor, spring coefficient. X is the position. So minus kx equals ma and we're mm. just going to call acceleration x double dot that's just how yeah. you say it now if you put it on the same side of the equation then you have you have m x double dot plus kx equals zero mm -hmm. now x is the position of the mass as time goes on and as physicists do, we can guess a solution to this. So what is a function that when you take two derivatives of it, you get the same thing back, except minus sign, because we want it to equal zero. Mm -hmm. Also, little detail, if we divide both sides by m, then we just get x double dot plus k over m x equals zero. Mm -hmm. So then we, we want to take two derivatives of something, and we want to get minus... And then we, we need a factor of k over m, but twice, right? Because if we take two derivatives in. So we want a factor of like square root k over m inside that function. Um, and then we want those to cancel. The natural selection for that is a sine function or a cosine function. And um, if you set your initial to conditions to be like position at time zero equals zero, then you're going to get a, an exact sine function. 
Um, so then there you go. You, you, the equation of motion is x double dot plus k over m x equals zero. That is the rule that your spring system has to obey <laughs> at any time. Now, using that equation of motion, you can find a solution for the position and the solution for the position depends on your initial conditions. Now this gets a little bit more technical because we're dealing with a second order derivative or second order differential equations, which means we need two initial conditions, in this case, position and velocity. And depending on your position and velocity, we will get the exact function that satisfies the equation of motion and will tell you the position as a function of time. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the whole process. And this this was this was the case for a spring, but you know, F equals MA, this could be for any situation, right? If the force is tension with friction involved and air resistance and gravity, you just put all of those on one side and then you say that is equal to M times the second derivative of X. And then most of the time, I guess all of the time, the forces are either functions of time. You can have like an oscillating electric field that oscillates with time and doesn't depend on position or anything else. You can have a force which depends on the velocity, like air resistance. The faster you go, the more resistance there is to your motion. You can also have a force that depends on position, like gravity, how far away are you from the earth will tell you how much gravity is pulling on you. And those are the three, time, position, and velocity. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have a force that depends on acceleration. I don't think that works. No. That doesn't make sense, that no. Doesn't make, um, it does, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. There you go. Um, so yeah, you just put all those things in. Now, notice how time position is a function of time so that's an independent variable we have position which is something we're trying to solve for we have velocity which is the first derivative of position and we have uh, acceleration which is second derivative of, of position so everything is related to the position in time so once you have your equation of motion boom you solve for the position in, as a function of time but as we said earlier this is not always possible sometimes you will have a differential equation where even if you plug it into Wolfram Alpha, it will say no solution available because they just don't know how to solve it. But it might say, I don't know if Wolfram does this, but you might have a program that says, you know, no solution available, but we can solve it numerically depending on your initial conditions. Because, you, you know, you can plug in your all your conditions into the differential equation and then see how the position evolves mm. if you just increase the time by... 0.1 seconds and see what happens to the position and then you keep updating your position you keep updating your velocity and all that stuff mm -hmm. and then you can kind of approximate how your object would move given this equation of motion so in this in in, in all of what we've been talking about so far we've always we, we've been discussing kind of the idea of position velocity and and, the, and and base and basically position and velocity, right? Yeah. Interestingly enough, in the real world, also, when people describe equations of motion and how people and when people describe systems and how systems evolve, they also use similar variables. 
So any system, again, originally we were talking about the, mo- the main point of doing a lot of this is the solve for that equation of motion, which is mainly two things. The equation of motion is actually something dot. When I say dot, I mean with respect to time. So derivative of something with respect to time. That's equation of motion. So when I say like equation of motion of of like some particles position, then the like x dot, like I'm finding how its position changes with respect to time. Mm-hmm. And in everything that we know so far, if we are given the positions of every particle in the universe, like you said, we would not be able to determine what happens next because a key thing of what you also need with its position is its velocity or how it changes with time. And another way of saying velocity is momentum. <laughs> I mean, it's not really, but you know what I mean? It's like kind it's, of equivalent. <laughs> what I mean is that now what, what I'm basically kind of getting into is the definition of canonical variables. So canonical mm. variables are like the variables in your system that basically dip, that basically your system depends on. It's two variables that will dictate the whole outcome of your system. Did you do canonical transformations? Is that what you're going to yeah, talk about? I mean, I'm not I'm not going to talk about okay. them, but like yeah, we did in the, in the thing that I mean, I that's did. really related to canonical variables, yeah. I'm just bringing up the idea of what a system is really made of, right? Because that's that's just what it is like what when like in the real world like we're just talking about okay what we do in terms of math but i think the biggest thing when people talk to me about math and when people talk to me about physics a lot of times you're just thinking okay but how can how can this actually be applied like what are we actually looking for and classical mechanics is the one thing that you can actually do (laughs) like you know quantum mechanics so many times like you're just really thinking like it's like sixteen dimensions, and you're just like you know, you're like you know. <laughs> when? <laughs> no, I'm saying uh, I'm saying in a lot of in a lot of quantum experiments, like it's a lot of okay. I guess there is experimentation as well, but you know what I mean. Like classical mechanics is in my is uh, not opinion, but is the one physics where you can directly see its implication. I push this glass; it's accelerating with a force. I directly see that implication. You but could, can I test a particle in a potential you well? Could, you could send a photon through an analyzer. Can I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can. You can, can you can buy polarizers on Amazon. Okay, but that's not the same. <laughs> I mean, You know what you could actually do? You can buy three polarizers in, on Amazon. You can put one vertically polarized. You can put one horizontally polarized. And, and then you put another one in the middle. And then the question you ask yourself is, Okay, I have a setup with two polarizers and zero photons can get through both. This of them. is actually one of the physics experiments. It is. <laughs> so you you have two you have two polarizers. Zero photons can go through. So why is it that when you add a polarizer in between, yeah. you increase the intensity? Think about that. That is a quantum mechanical experiment that you can do at home. Okay, why? Okay, wow. You make a point. You make a point. You can do a quantum mechanics experiment at home. Point being, the classical and is just a lot more interpretable. You know, it's just a lot more interpretable. I'm saying, sure, there are experiments that you can do at home with quantum mechanics, but it's a little more difficult. In this particular situation, you let out a very easy one. But I'm just saying classical in general, like the whole point of it is that you can use it with macroscopic uh, objects and mas- macroscopic, you know, uh, uh, phenomenon. Like you don't need to really look at the quantum effects. So... All this, again, basically to say that given a position and given a momentum, you can 
basically solve for whatever you want in your system. And in this situation, if you have, let's say, multiple particles or multiple, um, yeah, let's say you have multiple particles in a system, all you really have to do is know each and every one of those, uh, sorry, each and every one of their position and momentum. Now, you might have realized something there. This violates something that we think should not be true. How can you know the position of each particle and the momentum of each particle? Because isn't that like the whole point of quantum mechanics saying, no, that doesn't work, right? So that's the interesting, you know, kind of part from classical. And that's where it breaks off with quantum mechanics. Because in classical mechanics, we can and we do know the position and momentum of every particle in the system. But it's in the quantum world where these things don't exactly work out. Are you sure? What do you mean? We, we know the position and momentum of every single particle. Well, again, when you're talking about like that uncertainty statement, that level is so microscopic that it doesn't really do anything with, with classical no, objects. But if you have like any rigid body, yeah, you're considering the momentum and the position of every single particle particle in that body. no that's what i'm saying you can't do the particle thing that's what i'm saying you can't do it the particle way but if you're talking about like different like many parts of your system like if you're talking about this rod plus this rod plus this rod plus that rod for example okay. and like you know their values okay. is what i'm saying it's you just can... you're, you're saying particle well i'm saying the uh, ideal is no. that you do it with every particle because that's what the, the like the okay. formula is like okay you have every part you have all the positions you have all the momentums boom you got everything you want that's what I'm trying to say. The unfortunate part is that in the real world, we, we can't do that with when it comes to particles. When it comes to that level, we can't apply the same theory to quantum mechanics. That's literally why like the physics is just different. You know, like that's why when people say like the you know, like the quantum quantum mechanics is different, not because like the like it's literally because the physics written for the subject is a little bit different. Like it just doesn't work at the same level. You know, there, there are different things that you need to know. And yeah, I mean, that's just a basic thing on canonical variables that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, okay. That's just a basic thing I wanted to bring mm -hmm. up because I think it's very important for just the general idea of understanding what a system is made of and just, yeah, just mainly understanding a system. Uh, oh, yeah. Nonlinearity. That's, a, that's okay. a good topic. Okay. Okay. So back to oscillators for one second. Um, let's think about a pendulum. So if you really wanted to, you've probably done this before. Uh, but the equation of motion that you get is, well, you get, well, yeah, we'll talk about angles. So we'll say theta double dot equals, uh, sorry, theta double dot plus G over L sine theta oh, you're doing equals that. zero, right? Okay. Now, th this might remind you of the equation that I was talking about earlier with a spring. And this is because um, these are, you know, both talking about oscillation. And so the equations of motion are going to look very similar. Mm -hmm. In this case, though, instead of having an, an x, right, something linear in, in x, you get sine theta which is not 
you know, a linear function by any means. Um, so like, what happens? How can we solve this equation? Well, the, the answer to that is yes. But there is something that you will get to know very, very well. And that is small angle approximation and Taylor expansions. Um, so sine theta, if you're familiar with the Taylor expansion, starts with right sine theta equals theta. That is the first order approximation. Um, and if we make that, you know, that assumption that we have small angles, so the higher order terms are pretty much equal to zero, we can just look at the first term in the Taylor expansion. Then we have the exact same situation as our spring because we have, you know, a second order linear homogeneous differential equation, the solution to which we already know, um, especially because the coefficient of the theta term is positive. So we know it's going to be just a sine function, just regular oscillation, which is somewhat something we could have already mm -hmm. set, right? Um, but the problem is that this only restricts us to small oscillations, which is kind of boring because in the real world, when you're swinging something around, you're usually just swinging it as like, you know, however you want, right? Or if you're looking at like Galileo, you're watching a chandelier swing across and oscillate. It's probably not doing like small angles. Mm -hmm. So what happens when small angles are no longer applicable? Well, this is when we have to start looking at the higher order terms in the Taylor expansion. Exactly. This is actually, uh, interestingly enough, a experiment that I had to do for one of my uh, for one of my classes where I had to literally mm -hmm. set up a pendulum mm -hmm. and uh, test the large angles. Yeah. So mm -hmm. continue, continue. Yeah. So what happens is that when we solve the first order differential, or sorry, second order regular small angle approximation differential equation, we get a sine term and we get a frequency of oscillation right we get one frequency and that's what we see right the pendulum just goes across however if we start considering the next higher order term and here's the thing we can say that okay the amplitude of our oscillation is big enough such that the the theta cubed over six term is relevant but everything after that is not relevant. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, the theta to the power of five is still smaller. Again, this so. isn't the Taylor expansion, yeah, by the way. The yes. Taylor expansion. Okay, yes. Um, yeah. And so, now, yeah, exactly. Now the, the big thing is now, and you can no longer say sine theta is approximately yeah. theta, yeah. which was the whole basis of understanding its equations of motion with small angle in the first place, mm -hmm. right? And, and saying period equals L over G and all that good stuff, all those easy equations come from the fundamental fact that sine theta equals theta. But if that's not true. Here's the thing. Now your equation is a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And another thing that we love to do in physics is to take things and just make them a little bit simpler, even though they're a little more wrong. <laughs> but you you just get to see the general behavior. And this is something that we do in astrophysics this very all the time. Cal <laughs> assumption right here. Yeah, this is the one. Astrophysics is hilarious. We just had a problem set where 
in the question, they're literally, they just say, be very careless with your <laughs> approximations. It literally said that. And so we were approximating, you know, five <laughs> equals one. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Five equals <laughs> one. Like that, the, that's the level of approximation. Okay. What I'm about to say is not that crazy, but here's what we do, okay? We take our solution for the first order case and we plug it into the cubed term to see what kind of things would happen, right? And the idea is that <clears throat> if you take your solution and you plug it into the linear term, then you just get your solution back. If you take your solution, you plug it into the cubed term, you're going to get those little, or an approximation for those slight deviations due to the new mm -hmm. term that you just added and if you do the math what you'll find is that an extra term comes out and you actually get a second frequency and if i remember it's three times the natural frequency of your pendulum so now you have you, your solution involves the one term from that that includes the natural frequency of your pendulum and then plus another term that has a sign of three omega t, mm -hmm. right? So it goes three times faster, but the amplitude is less. And so you can search up a bunch of diagrams about, you know, nonlinear oscillations and things like that. Um, and what you see is that now you're, it's kind of, I think it's called period doubling or something like that. Basically, you'll get on one period, it'll have one amplitude and on the next way around it'll have a smaller amplitude and it'll go back up and then back down and then back up and then back down wait i'm actually remembering that's actually what i saw for one of my uh yeah for one of my large angles but i, I didn't actually talk about that <laughs> yeah and if you if you now the more you increase the amplitude of your oscillation in general um now the theta to the power of five term becomes relevant mm -hmm. and you'll get three different amplitudes, sorry, three different amplitudes. And so now you're going to get on your first run, it's going to be at some amplitude. And then on the second one, it's going to be a little bit lower. It might be lower or higher. I don't know. Depends on your initial conditions or whatever. Um, then you'll get like a smaller and a higher one. And as you can see, when you increase your amplitude to you know, yeah, I guess to very high numbers. What happens is that the amount of different amplitude peaks that you get just increases until your period for the entire oscillation, including all of the different amplitudes, becomes infinite and it doesn't reproduce. And that's just chaos, right? <laughs> if your oscillation never looks the same ever again, then you have something that is not predictable. I don't believe you can have true chaos though in this scenario. No, chaos, not, this yeah. is just an example. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. You okay. can have true chaos. Because no, chaos requires three degrees of freedom. Yeah. So in this case, in a simple, in any kind of pendulum, you, I'm, I'm assuming you're assuming that you're doing it on a plane. It's planar yeah. motion, exactly. Yeah. So then, technically, like it's it's, it's still an one idea. degree it's of freedom. Idea, it's an idea for chaos, but it's not it's not chaos. Wait, I don't think it's, it's not chaotic. I don't think it's degrees of freedom. No, I know this for a fact because my I literally it's remember, degrees of yeah, freedom yeah, because he said very 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 clearly 
Well, one guy asked in this pendulum example, if we just take it past pi over two, would it theoretically be chaotic? And he's like, if it's in the planar motion, if it's in your XY plane, fundamentally, it cannot be chaotic because just the way that we define chaos, chaos is with three degrees of freedom. And this is the way he said it. So don't take my word for it, but I'm assuming he's a professor. So he's probably right. Because I, I know what you're referring to. The yeah. way that I learned it is that you have your equation of motion. And what you do is you decompose it into saying, like, let's say, um, okay, you, you have x1 equals x2 dot. And then you have x2 equals x3 dot. And then you just keep going down the line until you've listed and out. that's chaos is what you're no, saying? No, no. What's chaos is that you need at least three of these equations and one of them has to be nonlinear. And so, for example... So it, maybe it does require... I Again, I don't really know this very specifics, but I just remember him very clearly saying it needs to be an elliptic motion, like non-planar motion for, yeah. to introduce chaos. Because, for example, like this might be contradicting what you're saying, but I can say that x1 equals x2 dot x2 equals x3 dot and then x3 oh no this this case would only have two equations okay what i'm trying to get at is in your equation of motion you have x double dot equals minus gl sine theta hmm. sine x in this case um so that's your description for let's say x one double dot okay that has a nonlinear term in it then all we need to to get the original x we just need to call okay x2 is x1 dot and then x3 is x2 dot so it basically just goes down the line and then what you do is you solve for x1 hmm. so you know i don't know I don't know if I this still would characterize chaotic, but it would still be an introduction to explaining like what it kind of means to be chaotic because that's like it. It's, it's kind of what it means to be chaotic, but it's not a chaotic system at that point, technically. At least know. my understanding of it. One thing I did want to mention, though, before we ended the podcast, because this is maybe the most fundamental principle in classical mechanics, something that we I think slip from our minds and this is definitely going to be a clip because it's insane which is the principle of put least, that in the clip <laughs> <laughs> which is the principle of least action i think this is basically what uh, wait, okay hold on i don't think i don't think we can talk about that without talking about lagrangian i mean we've dabbled like we've had a sentence into Lagrangian. I, 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 I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I know we're very limited on time, but I just really think that in a classical mechanics episode, you can't not talk about this. All right. I just think it's crazy. So the most basic thing about Lagrangians that we've explained is basically it's just a difference in energy. And the Lagrangian is doing the same thing that Newtonian mechanics does. And it's basically its goal is just to explain the way that a system evolves. That's basically it. Now, a Lagrangian, as Parker said, is no longer taking vectors as instead of forces with Newtonian mechanics. It's taking scalars as kinetic and potential energy. Wait, hold on. Can you just 
explain the Lagrangian and then do the principle of least action next time? Because I can explain the quantum mechanical reason why the principle of least action works, and I can't do that right now. Oh, I just, I just wanted to, I, just, I just wanted, oh, bro, like I think because that would go perfectly. Okay, just explain it too, because I think this is way too important to not include it. Okay, you're wasting my time. Thank you very much. No, okay. so quickly, quickly here, quickly here, quickly but efficiently. So again, the Lagrangian is simply a difference in kinetic and potential energy. And it's doing the same thing that Newtonian mechanics is doing, or the or F equals MA is doing, but instead of dealing with vectors, it's simply dealing with a scalar. And what the Lagrangian is basically telling you is something that exactly, we can get into in a Lagrangian mechanics episode. All I want to talk about here is what this action is, just really, really quickly. Because I think, again, it's just very, very fundamental. The Lagrangian, again, is just saying from point A to point B, what is the change in kinetic and potential energy? That's like, that. that's your Lagrangian. T minus V is your Lagrangian. T is your kinetic energy. V is your potential energy. The action is a another mathematical quantity in, in, in classical mechanics that's simply basically the integral of the Lagrangian. It's basically taking all of the possible ways that you can go from point A to point B. Now, this can be, if you're just thinking in terms of, let's say, dropping a ball, you can think about it in terms of kinetic energy and potential energy. Like you can do it in many different ways. You can throw it straight down. You can throw it up and then down. You can throw it horizontal then down. Okay. You know, just think of different ways. You can have multiple different ways from reaching of reaching point A, I mean, point B from point A. The principle of least action basically states that any object will follow the path of least action. That means to know what an object will do over time, that means how the object evolves from point A to point B, will be given by minimizing this function. Again, this function is basically just an integral, which basically is taking all the possible ways that you get from A to B. And the principle of least action is basically just saying that the way, the actual way that this object moves is simply by minimizing this integral. That's it. That's the principle of least action. We will definitely discuss it more if we ever do happen to do a Lagrangian mechanics episode. I think we should do a more in-depth one with a professor. I think that would be really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And we can definitely go much deeper into it. But mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, or at least speak on this, because I think a classical mechanics episode without this principle is is is, is futile. So that's, yeah, that's I will the try to get uh, my professor. That will be amazing. That will be amazing. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. He's that will really be amazing. Good at explaining is he? Yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay, well, as Parker already mentioned, we're, it's uh, it's quite late. We have our class starting in two minutes, so we're good. But uh, <laughs> so thank you everybody for listening to yes. this episode. Make sure to follow us. Rate the episode five stars if you're listening on Spotify. Come subscribe, comment, all this stuff. We will see you guys next time. I'm your host Parker, and I'm Ray, and we shall see you soon. Bye, guys. <laughs>